RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your internet privacy today by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog to protect your data. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. The first ships in this collection, including the Orville itself, are available now at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code Mission10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase with free shipping. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 382, Blaze of Glory. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. At Mission Log, it is our mission to evade marauding soldiers, navigate smoky caverns, and rescue the innocent. All so we can share with you the morals, meanings, and messages of Star Trek. This week, Blaze of Glory, where at least one of our characters will go out in a... In a... Oh... Oh, uh, what's the phrase? Help me. Um, I, I know. In like a lion, out like a lamb. No, uh, see, you're so close, but it's... Uh, uh, Maybe it was out in a flash. No, no, that's... Uh, no, uh, whatever it is, it'll, it'll come to me. While I'm thinking on it, perhaps you can tell our listeners how to reach us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Your reviews at Apple Podcasts help other people find the show, and we do appreciate it. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. We'll hit trivia in just a moment, but first a quick word from our friends at Eagle Moss and... The Orville Collection. So, this collection, tell us about it. Norman, tell us all about the Orville official ships. Well, if you, uh, if you would indulge us a little bit here, audience, and let us deviate from our normal Star Trek conversation, we'd like to talk about the Orville official ships collections by Eagle Moss. And this collection is developed in partnership and based on Seth MacFarlane's hit science fiction comedy drama, and the ships of this brand new Orville ships collection are available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. The first ships in the collection, the Planetary Union ship, the USS Orville, ECV-197, and its shuttle, the ECV-1971, are available right now directly from the Eagle Moss shop for only $29.95 each, with free shipping. There's even an oversized XL edition of the Orville, available for only $74.95. No matter what you order, use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. Now, what I love about everything from Eagle Moss, whether it's the uh, Star Trek collection or the Orville collection, anything they make, is that they are professionally done with meticulous detail. So, of course, these are based on careful study of the models created for use in the series. They are highly detailed. They're made out of die-cast metal and high-quality ABS materials. And then they are hand-painted to get that stunning, perfect accuracy. Each ship also comes with a display base, plus a collector's magazine filled with concept art, interviews, and behind-the-scenes details of the Orville TV series. Additional ships are slated to join the collection soon, but these are the ones you want to get right now while you can. And remember to double-check your list to check out who's naughty, who's nice, and... Well, naughty or nice, that's kind of the Orville shtick, so it doesn't really matter what you choose. All of the above, right? All of the above. So full details, including comprehensive views of each ship and ordering information can be found at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. And now, with... uh, I'm not going to say it's like kind of a hero slash villain slash uh, approach to the trivia here's john champion 
I'm not exactly sure where he's going to go with the trivia, but he's always a hero in my book. Oh, thank you, Norman. So kind of you. Well, here we go. Today's episode is written by Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. And here we have an episode written by a couple of producers and obviously frequent writers credited to the show, really meant to serve a purpose to the series overall. The intention, the closer that we get to the end of season five, was to wrap up loose plot threads. Earlier, we settled what was happening with the Klingons. Uh, Then we shifted Dukat and the Cardassians back to a new thread along with the Dominion. Now it's time, from Ira's point of view, to wrap up the McKee storyline once and for all. In the director's chair, we have Kim Friedman. You may recall that we mentioned Kim when she picked up her first science fiction directing gig ever back in season two of DS9 with The Wire. She'd gotten her start in TV directing in the 70s with Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Many TV comedies followed like Square Pegs and Alice and a full eight episodes of The Love Boat. Now, this is the last time we will see her credited on DS9, but we will catch up with her again in the early seasons of Voyager. There is a great use of a practical effect here in the Badlands. Those plasma filaments, those flaming columns, those were created by Gary Hutzel. And it was basically a a powerful fan that they had turned uh, upside down and uh, put on the bottom of a walled-off column made of drywall. And they filled that column with nitrogen gas and then ignited propane in there and turned up the fan. And boom! instant fire plumes. And we also have an extensive redress of the set we saw last week as the Gaia Village. Those rooms were trashed and repainted to make the Maquis areas for this episode. And let's talk about guest stars. Well, we mostly have our expected recurring roles. Uh, There's Aaron back as Nog. There's JG back as Martok. And that whole plot line was really uh, a way that the writers were just trying to signal to the audience that the Klingons were still around. Martok was okay after the events of Soldiers of the Empire. And I really like little things like that instead of just having characters completely disappear until a new story needs them again. Kenneth Marshall, of course, is back as Michael editing. And we're fairly certain for the last time. Have to double check on that. Finally, we meet Rebecca played by Gretchen German. Gretchen got her start in the 80s, and in addition to the guest roles that she did then, picked up a few recurring on series like Wings and Home Improvement. After DS9, she shows up in Will and Grace and Modern Family, along with several TV movies and short films. This is her only Trek appearance. Cisco and his sworn enemy, a man who betrayed his oath to Starfleet, stuck in a runabout together for an entire trip. Shall we pass the time with some show tunes? Prologue. Dinner time with the Cisco's and Nog is the special guest. He reveals to the captain that he's having a very tough time in his new security job on the station. It's the Klingons. They bully him and don't show him any respect. Sisko says maybe he needs to act a little more Klingon himself next time by showing them they can't intimidate him. And as if on cue, General Martok comes in, but not to mess with Nog this time. He's got important news. He intercepted a fragment of a message from what remains of the Maquis. It's from a woman to Michael, stating that the missiles have been launched and will reach their target, Cardassia, in 13 days. Martok believes the Maquis use Klingon cloaking devices to hide the missiles. If they hit the target, they'll kill millions. The Cardassians, with the protection of the Dominion, will retaliate by starting a war with the Alpha Quadrant. Act 1. Dax and Worf were unsuccessful looking in the Badlands for a launch site. They also drew the attention of the Jem'Hadar, since the Defiance warp engines were easy to track even while cloaked. Captain Sisko will try another tactic then. He'll go right to the only Maquis named Michael he can think of. Michael Eddington, right there in a Federation prison. As you might expect, Eddington is in no mood to cooperate. He denies knowing anything about the message, and he taunts Sisko that he'd never find the launch site, much less know a code to remotely disarm the missiles. 
Even when Cisco pleads with him that millions upon millions of people will be killed in the ensuing war, even offering up a pardon, Eddington is unmoved. Tensions on DS9 are running high as word of the coming attack on Cardassia makes the rounds. Even Morn freaks out and bashes Quark in the noggin before running off to the Bajoran Temple. A message comes through to Ops, though, from Captain Sisko. He's on his way to the Badlands in a runabout, since the Defiant would attract too much attention. And he has a guest with him, Michael Eddington. Act 2. On board the runabout, oh boy... These two are going to have a long trip ahead of them. Eddington is complaining about the replicated food, how he got used to how much better the real thing is when he grew it himself with the other Maquis. He wonders if the tomatoes he planted are completely destroyed, but Sisko reminds him that literally everything will be destroyed if they don't complete this mission to stop the missiles. But Eddington isn't in the least bought into the mission. As far as he's concerned, he's already a dead man and has no reason to help the Federation with anything. He holds his grudge against Sisko, the one who kept corralling the Maquis until they were easy targets for the Cardassians. Even Ben's old friend, Cal Hudson, was among the casualties. Cal forgave Ben, though, which Eddington says is more than what Ben did for any of the Maquis. Eddington believes he had the Cardassians on the run, that they were on the verge of a military victory, but Sisko brings him back to reality that all he did was push them to the Dominion, and now this is a whole other ballgame. Back on DS9, Nog and Jake are at Quark's bar while a bunch of very raucous Klingons are headbutting each other for fun. Nog is so ready to assert himself when they get out of hand, but he humiliates himself by tipping back too far in his own chair and hitting the ground. It's been long enough on the runabout that Eddington falls asleep as they enter the Badlands. Sisko wakes him up, though, and points out that two Jem'Hadar warships have arrived and are closing in fast. With Sisko out of his element, he casually releases Eddington from the handcuffs he's been wearing, makes himself a cup of Ractagino, and then sits back, wondering if Eddington will take over the helm. Perhaps his death wish isn't as pronounced as he claims. Taking the bait, Eddington shakes the Jem'Hadar at least for a moment by hiding their warp signature around a plasma filament. But as Sisko maintains his hands-off approach to this predicament, Eddington says he'll get him to the missile launch site, then he's going to kill him. Act 3. The Jem'Hadar were only fooled for so long. They're back, and Eddington has a new plan to lose them. There's a lot of teching the tech, but the long and short of it is that Cisco will have to do something very dangerous that amounts to changing the tires on your car while it's going down the highway at full speed. While Eddington flies, Cisco will go into a Jeffries tube and realign the impulse flow regulators, which will leave plasma exhaust that they can ignite. It's rough, but it does the trick. We're now down to two Jem'Hadar ships, and we have a slightly shaken Cisco emerging from the procedure demanding that Eddington get them to their destination. Checking in with Nog on security detail, the Klingons are, how dare they, loitering on the promenade. It's just the chance he needs to make a stand. And what do you know, General Martok sees Nog as either very brave or very stupid, but it works. The Klingons disperse, and maybe Nog has earned a little respect. Eddington and Sisko arrive now at the very well-hidden Athos IV, where the missile launch site awaits, and so does a long, winding labyrinth of caverns occupied by Jem'Hadar soldiers. Act 4. The firefight starts, and if not for the fog in the caves, Sisko and Eddington are at a distinct disadvantage. Sisko throws himself into the fray, though, at one point using a pipe to take on a Jem'Hadar while Eddington makes the fatal shot. It's all about protecting Eddington, who can prevent the missiles from reaching their target. As they wander through more of the caves, they come across a disturbing sight. The bodies of dozens of people. Maquis who were murdered by the Jem'Hadar. Eddington can't believe it. He thought the Cardassians were on the run, that the Maquis were going to declare themselves an independent nation. Sisko reminds him of the mission, though, that they still have a chance to save millions of lives if they stop the missiles. When they arrive at a locked doorway, Eddington punches in the code to get them in. Inside, there's a ragged group of Maquis survivors. 
Among them, a woman whose face we saw in the intercepted message. She's Rebecca, Eddington's wife. Act 5. So about those missiles, well, uh, you see, I'm afraid there aren't any. That story was just a way to get some attention. It was Rebecca's way of letting Eddington know that they had arrived at this spot. If Sisko hadn't dragged him along from prison, he says he would have volunteered. No missiles, no Dominion War, but that does not mean that all is okay. Sisko is royally peeved about being lied to, and he lets his fist take out his aggression on Eddington's face. They'll need to get it together, though, and get everyone to safety aboard the runabout. While the others rush, Eddington and Sisko fire off as many shots as they can on the approaching Jim Hadar, but one of those shots lands right on Eddington. Wounded, he tells Sisko to go on, that he'll continue the fight while the others get to safety. He does the best he can, trying to distract the Jim Hadar with the idea that there are more of the Maquis fighting back, but it's too late. His shots aren't enough, and Michael Eddington is finished, breathing his last word, Rebecca. Captain Sisko, meanwhile, has gotten everyone back to the runabout, including Rebecca. Back from the mission, Sisko and Dax have time to reflect on Eddington and the plight of the Maquis. He died fighting for what he believed in. Loyal to the bitter end. The end. So, John, I want to give you a plus one. It's been a long time since we've done this, but I want to give you a plus one because you brought back Teching the Tech. Oh, yeah, that old writer's note. Uh, it, it felt good to squeeze that in here. You know, there, there's obviously a little less Teching the Tech in DS9 than there was, say, in Next Gen. But, uh, you know, it just it feels right sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, Thank they you. had to tech the tech about the, I believe it was, tricking our taste buds because we were tasting reconstituted carbohydrate molecules. <laughs> yes, there was that too. Oh, I'm going to get yeah. into that. I mean, I'm going to make a big deal out of that at some point. You will see. <laughs> uh, but before right. we get to that, we can talk about uh, food of a different sort. Uh, I, I do think, and maybe it's just me, that the squid with tube grubs Looked a lot like mac and cheese. Right? <laughs> it looked good. It looked a yeah. lot like mac and cheese and maybe like a nice white cheddar uh, based on a bechamel sauce. Just, you know, mm-hmm. hey, so uh, good for them. Also on the table, a green salad, some rolls. Um, and yes, you know, it just proves that old point that, yes, you can enjoy something and then be completely repulsed by it if you learn it's something disgusting. It happens. Yeah, I wasn't sure... If it was mac and cheese or shells and cheese, but mm. then I took a, a a closer look. I'm like, yeah. Did you? Yeah, I kind of I went and did yeah. the freeze frame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. but I was like, oh, that looks really yes. good. Tube grubs, yeah. Tube grub puree, notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. So when when Captain Cisco tells Nog the next time Klingons refuse to acknowledge your presence, do what a Klingon would do: confront them about it. If you stand up to them, you'll earn their respect. Mm-hmm. So it's good advice when you understand exactly what's being said here. And I promise to return to this point later. Okay. Very good. I want to set the tone right now. Okay. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. I, yeah. I look forward to that. All right. Oh, I, I do like the, the line that uh, Martak has, a saber bear is most deadly when it is trapped with no hope of escape. That's good. You know, that that's sort of like a long way of saying that a cornered animal is dangerous, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I do believe, uh, John, wasn't he saber bear hunting on was it Kang's? Yes. Like it was Kang's summit? Yes, yes. They mentioned exactly. And then, yeah, and then he was abducted by the Dominion. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Very good, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, and so nice to say hello to an old friend. Hey, regular one, we see you. Right. Yes. How is that? Like, when people were watching this, how were like, hey, look, uh-huh. it's Space Lab regular one. Yeah. What's up with that? Yeah. It, it was super grainy stock footage, too. Uh, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely <laughs> stock footage. Uh, you know, beautifully backlit, but uh, yeah, it kind of didn't fit the rest of the show. But that's okay. Always nice to see regular one. That's all right. Mm-hmm. And man, Morn, just uh, just a crazy man. Can't shut him up. He panics easily. Runs around naked in space. John, no one can hear you streak. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Okay. That that's that is going on a poster of Morn. You know, but that whole strange that whole scene with Quark being treated for Morn's outburst. It it really felt like filler, 
And, yeah. um, you know, it was another one of those sort of contractual obligation scenes, which I know they're trying to make something of it. And they're trying to express how freaked out people on DS9 would be. I get it. Like, like there is some valuable information there, but it really felt like filler. And by the way, Bashir's technology is taking a very long time to heal Quark. Because normally, yeah. like he, he'd wave the little flashy light thing over his head. You cut away, you cut back, and he's done. He's good, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Oh, and, and I do want to talk about that replicator entree number one hundred three: uh, curried chicken and rice with a side order mm-hmm. of carrots, um, or as Michael Eddington says, replicated protein molecules and textured carbohydrates. Okay, now maybe I'm starting to rethink my idea about replicators because that sounds more like an old school 23rd century food synthesizer mm. than an actual replicator, you know? Because a replicator, yeah. they sort of imply that it just takes molecules, boom, 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 and like a person trapped in the pattern buffer of a transporter, you are literally recreating that thing. Whereas this, it sounds like you have some raw materials, proteins, carbohydrates, and then the computer is sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, like uh, 3D printing that thing to make it look and taste like what you expect. So maybe on a runabout, it's not as good. I wish maybe the writers could have just taken a little bit of a leap and said, my chicken sandwich and coffee. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> yep. right? Yep. Because uh, they do like the Ractagino on a runabout. Yeah. Or at least Cisco do. does. Yep. You know, I, I do like the fact that in the conversation that Eddington and Cisco had, that the, that Ed, Eddington was kind of like Eddington was using uh, the, you know, like the, the memory of Cal Hudson against Cisco. I really mm-hmm. like that he referenced him again because we didn't, we haven't heard about him or his exploits since the Maquis. Yeah. Because in, say, the subsequent episodes about, you know, say, the, the Maquis, their crimes against the Federation or against Cardassia in, uh, for the uniform and for the cause, he was never really mentioned. So seeing Cisco respond to hearing that name speaks volumes about how he held Cal Hudson in such high regard. Right. Right. Uh, there's something that I really love about that scene, too, which is, you know, for me, striking the right balance between creating a long story arc versus a short kind of self-contained thing. This story, when you have a moment like that, can actually work really well on its own. If I had not mm-hmm. seen that episode with Cal Hudson, based solely on Avery's reaction to that, based solely on the information they're getting out in the scene, you you can understand. This was a friend. He was in the Federation. Mm -hmm. He joined the Maquis. They had this huge falling out. There was forgiveness and not forgiveness. But if you've seen the episode, then clearly you have an appreciation and understanding about the depth that they went to in that. So I thought it was just a perfectly placed, really nice scene. And yeah, you know, the writers had known that they weren't bringing back uh, Bernie Casey as Cal Hudson. So what a good way to just give that story uh, some finality. Let's talk about something else very painful, Klingon headbutts. Because, look, I I know that those are stunt performers doing a stunt. They looked and sounded painful. (laughs) Not painful enough by Martok's estimation. No, I know. Right? Right. Yeah. So we only did – we did uh, Soldiers of the Empire a couple episodes ago. And so color me surprised. (laughs) (laughs) But we were trying to make a case for the the Klingons to be not this head – Budding, mm-hmm. drunken, loud monoculture. Oh, and guess what? <laughs> they didn't do us any favors yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And Martok was in the middle of yeah. that. But I also like that scene too because uh, it, it harkens back to to Nog and that ability of his to be able to to hear, kind of like the the audible decibel level, right? Like naturally, inherently, like as he did when he was deciphering the. I think it was the the audible fragment that uh, that they captured when Kira was under assassination threat yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah they've made good use so I thought of that was kind of neat uh for the for the ferengi by the way you know the the runabouts are kind of fun it's kind of like a tardis it can be as big or as small on the inside as you want it to be like mostly we just Ooh. see the cockpit but crossing the streams i know i know time. right but but in here you've got how many dozen or so uh maquis survivors who who fit inside that thing without any problem hopefully it's a short trip And I don't know much about the layout, uh, but I love, love, love that there is enough room for a Jeffrey's tube. 
I mean, yeah. no matter what, in the future, if you are an engineer, um, you just you start with the tube and you work your way out, no matter what the project is, like a house, right. an apartment building, whatever, no matter what, it's got to have a Jeffrey's tube go from there. So, you know, we don't see enough of ROM in Jeffrey's tubes. No, that no, it's is true. my biggest complaint right now. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And uh, hey, and like a Jeffrey's tube, uh, courage comes in all sizes. And now that, that is a Martok that I like. So yeah. uh, Martok encouraging the guys to headbutt, kind of, yeah, like uh, Martok, come on, you're better than that. But this, this is a Martok that I like because we, we've seen this fully like well-rounded guy who can be the tough warrior, but also has this like sensitivity and and understanding of other people. Yeah, I like that too because it's yeah we were getting to like the head buddy Klingons, the drunken Klingons, the rowdy Klingons, mm-hmm. but that's just their nature. And I like how Martok he respected Nog's authority mm-hmm. on the station. He's like, okay, yeah, 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 I, I get it. Sorry, yeah, you know we're being jerks. Don't push it, little guy. But I I appreciate your you know your your guts. Yeah, well, we'll see. Right, I, I, it's not just about appreciating Nog. It's about appreciating the principle. You know, like, like right. that's what's so cool about it. It's just like yeah. it, it all it all clicks. That all of that in that scene works. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Aaron in that scene is just fabulous. Mm-hmm. I think that he and JG were incredibly just. Uh, they were so synced with each other when it came to their yeah. their dialogue and their timing. Yes, I thought it was fabulous to watch. Yes. Really, really, really well done. Yeah. Um, so. Let me ask you something, John. And this is something that I almost texted you. Okay. Because, so there's there okay. there's a uh, there's a response that I have almost every episode where I feel the urge to text John like <laughs> something. And and this was the urge that I kind of suppressed, but I really wanted to text him about it. And I said, "This is actually I pulled this off of my text and I copied it, put it here in the notes." Uh, so when Cisco and Eddington reached the surface of the missile base, yeah. he didn't put the restraints on him because why? Right. Yeah. Right? Cisco yeah. doesn't even have a phaser trained on him. Yeah. The man who he said doesn't want to fight Cisco, he wants to kill him. So we're good with that. Right. And they keep reinforcing that because I want to say it's a good three times at least that Eddington mm-hmm. just points his gun at Cisco. Right. Over and over. Like, hey, come on. This is, yeah, you give him the lead pipe. <laughs> you keep the gun. That's what I would do. And there's a guy that I want to keep on a short leash. I know that we're going to, we're going to get to that sure. in the discussion. Sure. But I, I do like the fact that we we drove this entire narrative into this one final scene where he did what he needed to do and he wanted to get out the woman he loved and he died his hero's death, mm-hmm. which references for the uniform quite literally. Like he, he died the romantic death of the hero, the hero of the story that he wanted to be. Yeah. An even shorter summary of the last part of the story. Honey, I'm home. Boom. Honey, the Cardassians are home too. We will get right back to Blaze of Glory, but first, a word from Express VPN. So we are heavily into the month of December, which means you've probably been watching your favorite holiday movies, but... What if you go to Netflix and discover your favorite Christmas movie isn't available? What do you do? That's panic mode, <laughs> especially during the season. So get ready to have your mind boom, boom. blown. <laughs> boom. You can accuse ExpressVPN to watch any Netflix library in the world. I mean, think about that. You could just say, you know, take the survey, figure out what Christmas movie is somebody's Christmas movie, and if you don't see it, you just change location and then look for it elsewhere, and then there it is, like like magic. So um, recently, I used ExpressVPN. I mentioned this uh, a little while ago on our show uh, to stream a Christmas classic. Um, maybe not the classic you're thinking. You might be thinking of like Elf, which you can find on uh, German Netflix. You might be thinking of mm-hmm. Gremlins, which you can find on French Netflix. But no, no, no. If you go to UK Netflix, Doctor Who, A Christmas Carol. Yeah. Because that's what I, yeah, I need, I need some Matt Smith Christmas in my life. 
So that's what I mm-hmm. went for. And look, here's how easy it is. You go to the app, you hit a little toggle, it shows you a drop down of the countries that are available. And then like that, you just give it a second to reset. And then you are on the internet as if you were in that country. No, you didn't have to go anywhere. You just hit that little toggle. So you hit that button, change location, refresh, and that's it. You're there. So ExpressVPN, it lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. And you can choose from almost 100 countries. So just imagine all the Netflix libraries you can explore. I don't know what other languages you speak, but maybe challenge yourself. Watch a movie in a different language. Let me know how that goes. And of course, it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Disney+, Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch movies and shows is because, well, primarily, it is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering, and you can stream in HD. ExpressVPN works on all of your devices, too. Phones, tablets, media consoles, smart TVs, so you can use it to watch whatever you want on the go or on the big screen. You know, it's so important, John, that people get the content that they, they need to have in their lives because especially day in today's age where we are locked down mm-hmm. for I don't know how long right. anymore. But that kind of content can bring so much joy to people, especially during the holiday season. So I think that's a fantastic way of being able to watch what you need to watch when you need to watch it. So if you if you visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash mission log, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and get your holiday fix at expressvpn.com slash mission log. All right, blaze of glory. Here we go. Now, I, I think that you and I will probably, uh, we're going to approach some things from some from different angles depending here. And I, I, this sounds weird, but I want to go down this thread just a little bit that I mentioned mm-hmm. in the last segment, and that is about food. Yeah, I know. I know. It's sort of the running gag, and, and it is from the heart that I do notice food in Star Trek because it's fun. It's one of my passions. But there was a really interesting conversation happening on that runabout. So, yeah, Eddington has a point about growing real food. It's great. And, and I, by the way, I'm putting real in finger quotes here for those of you who can't see me. Real food. Um Uh, quote-unquote real food is great there is a sense of pride involved and that 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 comes down to how you uh, harvest and prepare and enjoy that food but i hate where he's going with this discussion and specifically designed to get under cisco's skin about his dedication to the federation and its ideals and his whole lifestyle um, and obviously that scene is designed to do exactly that. We're using that food as a metaphor to see their differences and see their different values, right? But this is a kind of a conversation that comes up a lot. And the gist of it mm-hmm. is this, that, that one person's real, quote-unquote real, is more real than the other's. And it's not just about how something is grown or what level of technology is used or not used in the process, especially when we're talking about food. But it's about this implied moral value that comes along with it. And I find that that's – it's really a sort of a dangerous, slippery slope to go down. Because you can also make the argument. You can say like, okay, well, Michael Eddington – you're using some types of technologies. Maybe you're using uh, seeds that were, uh, you, you know, hydroponically uh, grown from their, their forebears. Or, you know, maybe they were uh, flash frozen to get them to you. Maybe you're using technology to till the soil. Maybe you're using technology to uh, help grow and maintain the right environment for those. And maybe you're using different mm-hmm. technologies to cook or make additives to that. So, it's very sanctimonious for him to then sit there and say to Cisco, you know, what's wrong with you is that you have bought into all of this stuff. And I'm going to use food as the example of that. Like, sure. no, no, no. At the end of the day, food is a necessity uh, for all of these people. And I, it's a little high and mighty to then assume that that comes with a moral value on top of it that makes uh, Eddington's choices 
better, quote unquote, better Mm -hmm. than Cisco's choices. Um, So we know that clearly the conversation is about more than that. But to me, what a great entry point to get into the differences that these two have. And there are many. Yeah, I always thought that this example was not so much his uh, his his analogy of how he grew mm-hmm. it. It's under what conditions that he was able to enjoy it. And he basically was saying that I enjoy my food when it is prepared under my blanket of freedom. Yeah, yeah. And, and every, you know, uh, all of the subtext of all of that is that I'm better than you because of that. <laughs> you know, yeah. That, is, yeah. that is the subtext yeah, for yeah. sure. I, I 100% yeah. agree. You know, it's being able to choose independently how you want to live without being under the auspices of your government is a better way to live. It's a freer way to mm-hmm. live. It is without constraints and without the the limitations of this vaunted federation that's supposed to be able to provide you with all of these modern uh, necessities for life, except for real freedom and real uh, ownership of your yeah, destiny. For real. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was getting at. And that kind of plays into, say, like the next part of that conversation. Because I think really like the crux of this episode happens in this type of two-man mm-hmm. play, which is in set, set in this runabout, uh, which is essentially mm-hmm. a set, a stage. And when Cisco is kind of playing chicken with Eddington and saying that you better take the controls or we're both going <laughs> right. to die. Yes. Really? I mean, like Eddington is a really good uh, mental and, and, and tactile strategist. So, so is he saying that, okay, Ben, I get what you're getting at, but there's no way that you are going to risk your life, your career, the career of the station, the career of, or, or the, uh, the future of you as a Bajoran emissary and your life with mm-hmm. Jake. For me, mm-hmm. no way. There's no way. So I'm going to call your bluff. I'm going to I'm going to play this game, whatever game you're playing, and I'm just going to see where this goes because it rings false yeah. to me. That entire scene rings false to me because for the uniform, the seething hatred that Cisco has for Eddington, he bombed a planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. To get to Eddington, and now he's just going to be like, hey, man, you better take the controls or we're both going to die in the Badlands, right. uh, and I'm just going to die because, and I'm going to sacrifice everything because I don't think that you're going to navigate us through that. That is garbage. <laughs> well, okay, well, is Cisco Sorry. just that cool, or is it just garbage? It's yeah, terrible. Okay. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's okay. garbage because it, it, takes the, it takes the teeth out of that brilliant it really scene does. Yeah. from For the Uniform. Yeah. And it, it really just dilutes the power and the, the, the gravitas of that relationship. And it doesn't get better from here, Yeah, in my opinion. Oh, no, it yeah. doesn't get better from here at all. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So let, let, let's talk about that other uh, dish. I, I've talked about a dish. I've talked about uh, curried chicken. Uh, with you know textured carbohydrates, revenge. I see as as a as another dish here. Yeah, revenge is a dish that is never good cold. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, also victory and revenge are they the same? Are they are they sides of the same coin? Mm. So I, I said that I was going to reference that quote from earlier in our observations, and I want to bring yeah. it up here in discussion. So. When Cisco says, the next time the Klingons refuse to acknowledge your presence, do what a Klingon would do. Confront them about it. If you stand up to them, you earn their respect. And Eddington did this exact same thing. So time and again, he stood up to Mm -hmm. Cisco because he believed in what he was doing was right. Until, as Cisco said, up to the bitter end. So many personality types like Cisco respect conviction especially the conviction of one's personality, if not just the person themselves. Cisco is a strong A-type. He's an alpha-type. Mm. And you're attracted to that kind of alpha-type character, the strength of one's resolve in what they're willing to do or sacrifice or endure to achieve those goals. I would like to quote that scene between he and Dax at the end of this episode. And it's very, very poignant. Cisco says, 
There's something attractive about a lost cause. And then Dax responds, maybe you have more in common with Eddington than you want to admit. And Cisco says, maybe. And if you had this conversation at the end of For the Uniform, he and Dax would have had a far different emotional tonal conversation because Cisco would have been hugely yeah. outraged. Yeah. Because at the end of that episode, Eddington is a traitor. But at the end of this episode, I don't think Cisco's painting him with that same kind of brush. See, and I wondered why we went there with Cisco. I mean, look, uh, partly I think that has to serve the Cal Hudson story. If you just completely remove him out of the equation, then I think we would have landed a different place. But I think Cisco Mm -hmm. now has to process all of this. It's not just about Eddington, the traitor. It's also about his friend. And when he's able to put an emotional value that touches him personally on what just happened, okay, now he has to see it from a different side. Also cleverly uh, put in there by giving Eddington a wife. Now, we knew her for all of about 90 seconds. But <laughs> but she is placed True. there to give Eddington more layers than we had before. Look, I'm going to land at a different place than Cisco did at the end of this episode. There is a line in here uh, that Eddington says, if you can't have victory, sometimes you just have to settle for revenge. So I think this, this is the moment. Where the whole exchange shifts, uh, it, it shifts that conversation about the Maquis. It's at this point that really, to me, reveals them as terrorists who are fighting a lost cause. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll come back to the whole lost cause thing a little bit later, too. But that's where I focus in this episode. You know, there were and there are many reasons to have sympathy with the Maquis up to a point. But Eddington mm-hmm. proved himself for exactly what Cisco was calling him out to be. Now, we can't let Cisco off the hook, like you just said. Cisco bombed innocent people. And we can sort of, again, you know, pat ourselves on the back for our ingenuity that nobody died because it was a biogenic weapon, but it didn't activate then and it wouldn't hurt those people at that moment and blah, blah, blah. But he still did it. And he still sank to Eddington's level and compromises values, I would say. That was a mission of revenge. And that that revenge, he's doing what Eddington is saying here. It's like, well, you didn't get victory. Let's just go for revenge. It's a nice consolation prize, you know? And I think that is a very unprincipled stand to take. I will also follow it up by saying that in that scene, Cisco still cannot laugh in any sort of believable way <laughs> at all. I'm not buying it, but that's a different story. The uh, the and I, I agree with what you're saying, that John. You know, it's it's interesting that in one sense, Eddington is feeding Cisco exactly what he wants to hear, but I think by the time we get to the end of the episode and when the ruse is up, how did you feel about it then? Because Eddington essentially says that, I'm sorry, I couldn't really let you in on our plan, but we weren't going to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. Sorry, not sorry. Mm-hmm. I just needed to manipulate you to get me to this point so I could save my wife. So exactly where does that leave the McKee in terms of their quote-unquote terrorist leanings? Because they very well could have been the ones that sent those 30-plus missiles that are you know modified with cloaking devices to start this sure. war, and they know people would. Believe I was it. sold. Yeah, on they that. know that people would believe. Yeah, it. you know, give this any different context, and if the Maquis had put their efforts into a uh, you know a distress signal, then you just wait for another starship to pass by, and you know have a uh, a very measured and reserved conversation in a uh, in a conference room somewhere saying hey, these people are under attack, they need help. Well, they're not a responsibility. Yeah, but they're people and they need our help, so we're going to go do it anyway. Boom, end of story, done. You know, men like Cisco, and we were talking about like this this alpha-type personality, and I think that's it's something that Eddington's really good at manipulating. He's he's a man of action. Eddington's a man of action. Cisco's a man of action. They they respect that about them, that quality. There's a certain attraction amongst these personality types. And there was this conversation that I remembered from Space Seed 
when Kirk and Scotty were talking about Khan. And Scotty says, should I try a Scottish accent? I think I will. (laughs) Dude, hey, hey, this is your show too. (laughs) (laughs) I must confess, gentlemen, I've always had a sneaking admiration for this one. And then Kirk says, he was the best of the tyrants and the most dangerous. They were supermen in a sense, stronger, braver, certainly more ambitious, more daring. Spock was beside himself when he, when Kirk, Bones, and Scotty were all just fawning over how amazing Khan was. But Kirk said, Mr. Spock, you misunderstand us. We can be against him and admire him all at the same time. And Spock said, illogical. Of course yeah. it is. But that's what, that's what ambitious and men of action, ambitious men of action bring out in other men who are ambitious and also of yeah. action. They, there's a certain admiration there. And I think Cisco can't help himself when it comes to Eddington. He knows he loathes Eddington up to a point yeah. based on his principles, but he also admires him at the same time because Eddington is so deep in his convictions that he's ready to risk anything. Well, And he put himself on the line to do it. Well, you know, maybe we'll see where this friendship goes in the next step. Oh, oh, no, I I guess we won't. Too soon, not too soon. Those dabbins look really dangerous. I hope we never have another episode that goes there again. So... We had four the cause, which brought us to four the uniform, and now it is four the glo- no, no. Ah. blaze of oh, no yeah blaze of uniform. What was it? Mm. Um, okay, hold on a second. Let me bring this into a, into a into a perspective that I can understand that you can understand, John. Mm-hmm. Eddington was shot down in a blaze of glory. So, how did you feel about? The morals, meanings, and messages of this episode. Where did you land? Well done, well done. Uh, so, look, a- as an episode here, I quite honestly have been struggling with this one. A- and it's one where I think I had a very strong reaction the first time I watched it. But then I do with many of them, and I find that my reaction will change a bit on that second or third or fourth viewing um, as I really dive into the details and pay more attention kind of scene by scene. This is a story that I think only truly holds up in the respect that it completes the story arc of Michael Eddington. It it would be too much to sort of ask of this episode if it just stood solely on its own. And there are elements of it that do, but I think its best payoff is when you've seen those other stories. I don't think it's a particularly strong episode, and and maybe not for the expected reasons here, because I think there are many great moments, and there is great payoff, but let me try this on you. So on the plus side, they did try to do something quite epic and balance out high drama character moments with tension and some action. I think all of those elements are there, um, very apparent for all of us. In the end, the biggest weakness, the biggest sin of this episode is the writing, which took me out of it on too many occasions. And I I don't think we're getting the best moments out of some of these scenes. And a lot of what happens is clunky expository dialogue, even that scene with Cisco and Dax at the end. And, And that one feels like it was tacked on because maybe they were running short or they just felt like they needed to explain what was going on in the characters' heads to the audience. And I think you're in trouble when you feel like you have to explain something to the audience. I think we've seen great stuff with Kenneth Marshall as Eddington before, but I don't think this episode is one of his best. He comes across as someone who is written as opposed to a character that I just believe is there in that world. Those dialogue scenes with Cisco in the caves, in particular fighting with the Jem'Hadar, they were mostly not good. There were a few great moments within those, but taken as a whole, very uneven. 
So either way, this left me a bit cold. I wasn't heavily invested in the McKee storyline anyway up until now, and I know that they went into this episode with the sole purpose of wrapping it up, but I don't know if it was the best way to do that, to be quite honest. So this is one of those where I, I want to give him an A for effort, and I want to say, look, the production value is there on the screen. You got some strong actors. You got a strong idea But in the end, what are you actually doing with it? Mm -hmm. So this is not going to go in my top 10 list. Uh, I'll tell you that right now. How about you, Norman? The one word I don't really want to use when it comes to um, an episode is serviceable, but I'll use it here Mm -hmm. because what it is, it it, it ferries the story along to its ultimate conclusion where they're just trying to wrap up Michael Eddington's storyline. And I think that this episode misses a lot of opportunities and I'm I'm critiquing, I'm critiquing this episode because uh, at, at this stage in the game because I don't know like where the Maquis storyline is going to go from here. I don't know if Rebecca is going to be mentioned at all later on. So I just have to critique it from this standpoint. I think what was lost here and what was so brilliantly set up in for the cause and for the uniform is Cisco's unwavering conviction to bring Eddington to justice. He was bent mm-hmm. on it. And they use that fantastic allegory in for the uniform of Les Mis, where you had the Valjean versus Javert, uh, uh, you know, dynamic going on, where Javert was, in, in this case, Cisco was just unrelenting in his pursuit to bring Valjean to justice, to bring Eddington to justice, and it's it's Valjean's mercy that sent Javert into this suicidal tailspin when they confronted each other for the last time. And they missed that here. They missed that opportunity here. Yeah. Because it was such a huge comparison in their previous encounter and in for the uniform. So if, if Eddington in some way forgave Cisco for all he has done to him in the Maquis and the bombing of that planet, you know, in for the uniform, I think that would have been a really good way for Eddington to go out so that, Cisco has to deal with this kind of emotional time bomb and mm-hmm. where he's going to place that. I just think that this episode became too much of a paint by numbers wrap up instead of what could have been an incredibly memorable send off for Eddington and for Kenneth Marshall. Yeah, right, right. Well, let's talk about morals, meanings, messages. I mean, I, I think I can kind of break these down for character, and I'll I'll go uh, from maybe least to most important here. Uh, Okay, so Nog gets a message, stand up to bullies, Uh, but more important really than that is earn respect through the performance of your duties. Pretty clear cut for him. And at least he's dealing with a guy like Martok, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, who actually knows how to show respect when it is earned. For Eddington, uh sometimes, look, protection and compassion are more important than principle. Okay, maybe, but we we don't really know what he learned because he's not around to share that with us. But let's talk about Cisco here, uh, because we land with this interesting ambiguity of the conversation that he has with Dax. I think because we reference Cal, Cisco has to take away that the bad guy isn't necessarily all bad. People can be motivated by a variety of factors. But didn't Cisco already know this, or shouldn't he have already known this, especially through his friend Cal? So did Cisco really learn anything new by this experience? I, I, I don't know that that's the case. Now, when it comes to Dax, because she's the one sitting there having this tete-a-tete with him, I disagree with Dax's assessment that there is no better death for a, quote, romantic than dying in defense of a lost cause. I I don't think that's the case. And I reject the idea that dying for what you believe in somehow makes that better. Because you can believe in terrible, destructive things. You can believe in things that endanger the people around you, which is precisely what Eddington did. And I have to side with Cisco here when he says in one of those very good scenes in the shuttle, you know, you drove the Cardassians right into the seat of power of the Dominion. You caused this. And it is because of that that ideological buy-in 
to what he was doing without being able to see the big picture, without being able to have the compassion and the foresight about the people that he claims to care for, especially when you add a wife into the mix, especially when you add friends in there who just by the McKee's own words, just want to live their lives, just want to farm their tomatoes and grow up. That's, a, that's actually um, a point that I have not yet considered, John, and I'm glad you brought that up. Because where, where I was leaning more towards in, in the morals, meanings, and messages of this episode is uh, going back to what I focused on when we were doing for the uniform was the, the idea and the definition of how we define hero, you know, and, or how does, in this case, how does Cisco define a hero? Is the word hero so rigid that it cannot encompass all that came before the most heroic act of all, self-sacrifice for others? Because everything that comes before what you've what you did ultimately to to create yourself in your own hero mythology is you know that's conversation mm-hmm. you know it's the it's the very last action that is what's most important. So I believe that there's a reason why that Cisco is so infuriated with Eddington. It's because he actually does believe in what he and the Maquis stand for. Now follow me around on this one. Up to a point. That's a very specific quote, unquote, up to a point. One of the reasons why I say this is because how deeply hurt Ben was and is about Cal Hudson. That, I think, was probably the best reference that they did for this episode is bringing Cal Hudson's memory back in. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Because without that, we lose a lot of the ambiguity that Cisco has about Eddington. So Cal Hudson was a man who he revered and... And Ben was so hurt by it, you could tell that he still honors him, still honors his memory. So you have Cal Eddington, you have the Maquis. They're all fighting for that fight that Cisco wants to fight, the one that's free from politics, the one that's free from diplomacy and rules and regulations. Cisco, I think, resents the Maquis for having the freedom that he doesn't have because he's an attache for Starfleet and uh, he is the Bajoran emissary. So he's constrained from acting the way I think he wants to act and being able to react to situations where he thinks that he can be most effective, but mm-hmm. he has to follow the protocols. So Starfleet captains are, are very similar to Eddington in wanting to be that romanticized, over-glorified hero archetype, the one who saves the galaxy from insurmountable odds time and again, barely surviving by the skin of their teeth. James T. Kirk made a career <laughs> of that. Picard did up to a point, but Cisco hasn't really. He's sequestered on Deep Space Nine, and he's not exploring space in that same way. And I think that he has a little bit of resentment when it comes to not sharing in that grand legacy of of blazing trails and, you know, saving universes and Mm -hmm. coming back with uh, these grand tales of, of doing so, being that hero. Yeah. But there's only really one way, John, that I can truly explain, I think, the the end of Eddington's career, the truest way that I can wrap up probably one of my favorite characters up to a point in Deep Space Nine, and that's Michael Eddington. And if I may, I'm going to nod to his nod to Les Mis to finish up. Do you hear the Marquis sing, singing the song of Angry Ben? It is the music of the rebels who were on the run again. When the vicious Jem Hadar gave them a beating like a drum, they were lucky to have a hero like Eddington. Ladies and gentlemen, dinner and a show. Norman Lau, don't forget to tip your waiters. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Empok Norm. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. If you kill off Kenneth Marshall's character, 
Would you describe that as a crawling of the herd? And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.